Today's scripture reading will be from Judges chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pe- pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. The book of Judges. Fascinating study on human nature and God's character. On the selfishness and rebelliousness and all the sinfulness of man and God's love, his devotion, his faithfulness, and his care for his people. It's amazing. We've, we were looking at a couple of characters in the book of Judges. Last week we looked at Gideon, and today we're going to take a peek into the life of Samson. Have you ever wondered why they were called judges? I mean, what in the world did they judge? They weren't judges in the lawyerly aspect. When we talk about a judge, we usually get images of a courtroom and the bench and the the jury and the trial and and all that kind of thing with uh, with a judge that's there. But the Hebrew term for judge, it's actually the Hebrew term for judge for that kind of judge. But it's also a word that means deliverer. Deliverer, and that's how it's used here in the book of Judges. If we look at Judges chapter 2, verse 16, we would read, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them or delivered them out of the hands of their, these raiders. So that was a purpose and the meaning of judges in the Old Testament time. Now these judges that we read about were chosen by God. They weren't elected. They were chosen by God to protect, preserve, and to deliver or rescue Israel from its enemies. See, when the nation of Israel went into the land of Canaan, it was already occupied by five of the most formidable and the most potentially dangerous nations that Israel was going to have to confront. But you remember, God made a promise to preserve his nation as he sent them into this promised land, and through that nation to bless the world, and through that nation to bring the seed, which was to be the Messiah. Now, as Joshua let the people of Israel into the promised land, the people made a promise. They made a promise to God in Joshua chapter 24, the very end of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, verse 24 where it says, the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Good promise. Hearts all in. They promised to be faithful. And that was a good thing because back in Deuteronomy, God made this promise to Moses and the people of Israel. Listen. 
See, I set before you today life and prosperity and death and destruction. Those are the only two choices, and those are still the only two choices, eternal life or eternal death. We are either dead in sin or we are dead to sin. For I command you today, God continues in that same passage, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Listen, then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. What a wonderful promise. But, on the other hand, God says, if your heart turns away and you are not obedient... And if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Both strong promises from God. One's very positive and one is the, the opposite. And they promise we will serve the Lord and we will obey your word. And that's what God wants to hear from all of us. That's where he wants all of our hearts. In fact, in the beginning of Judges chapter 2, verse 7, there's an encouraging word. It tells us that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. We, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Joshua le leading them in across the Jordan. Um, so they served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, outlived Joshua, and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. But then that generation died off, and a new generation was coming up. And the next generation committed the ultimate evil in God's sight. They began to worship idols. And there were idols everywhere in the land of Canaan, which is why God had instructed them, when you go in the land, drive out all those nations and destroy all their idols and worship places. There's a reason why they weren't supposed to, the, the, those idols weren't supposed to be there. But they didn't do that. And consequently, they were living shoulder to shoulder, side by side, with idolatrous, immoral, pagan neighbors. And those neighbors had a terribly negative effect on Israel. Israel fell into all kinds of forms of idolatry by the influence of their pagan neighbors. They are warned in the second chapter of Judges not to make alliances and covenants with these pagan people. But they did, both formal and informal. And so the book of Judges then records what happens over the period of 350 years of living side by side with the idolaters. It records centuries of Israel's repeated failure to obey God and to honor God. It's the old adage of history repeating itself generation after generation after generation. And it ended up being a cycle of rebellion, punishment, deliverance. Rebellion, punishment, deliverance. And in the book of Judges, that happens seven times. You would think they would learn. Seven times. And it happened to every generation. Over and over, Israel falls away from the Lord. Then they're punished by the Lord, and the agency of that punishment are those heathen nations, the enemies that are surrounding them. Then in the midst of that judgment, the people finally come to their senses, and they desperately cry out to God, and God, in His grace 
and his mercy and his faithfulness and his love raises up a deliverer for them. And that deliverer comes as a gracious gift from God to deliver his people. That's the story of Judges. That's what happens all through Judges. And we read in chapter 2, verse 18 there of Judges, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. The Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. He loved them, and he, he heard their cries, and it hurt his heart, and so he delivered them. But, verse 19, it goes on to say, when the judge died, God didn't say, ah, judge died, I'm going to go back to what I was doing before. When the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with them. And here it goes again. The cycle repeats seven times. And the only reason that Israel was not wiped off the face of the earth was because of God's faithfulness, His compassion, and His grace. And if you think about it, that's the only reason we're here today. Because of his faithfulness, his compassion, and his grace as he sent one final deliverer, that's what we've been singing about this morning, his own son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the last verse of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, we read kind of a summary statement of that period of time and why this life judgment cycle kept happening. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Humanly speaking, they had no king. That's true. Because it should have been a theocracy. In reality for them, God was the reigning king. He was their king. God was a rightful king, and if they had obeyed God, they would have had all those blessings that God had promised in Deuteronomy 30. But they didn't, and so it became an epic history of chaos and bizarre, complex scenarios and behavior and conduct. It's not unlike today, our own culture. God sent into this world not only the greatest deliverer in Jesus Christ, but he is also the King of kings and Lord of lords. And just as history kept repeating itself in those days, it's repeating itself today in our own country, founded on Christian principles. Our country, for the most part, has rejected the King of Kings. And Judges 21-25 comes back to haunt us. In these days, America has no king. Everyone is doing as they see fit. Folks, the Bible says it's not going to end well. Not going to end well. So in the midst of this cyclic chaos in the life of Israel, God raises up a number of judges, two of whom are Gideon and Samson, separated by a number of years. And last week we looked closely at the raising up of Gideon. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. It took seven years for them to finally cry out for help. Now, jumping ahead in history a little bit, several generations go by, and the cycle continues. And the Lord raises up another deliverer by the name of Samson, and he, too, is a very unlikely man. 
You know, in our age of Marvel Comics, Samson would be the first superhero. When I think of a man with supernatural power going about breaking and destroying things and killing people, right? That's what superheroes are, are doing in our movies today. And the beginning of the story of Samson is sort of like the beginning of the story of Gideon as far as the people of Israel. But as far as personal dispositions go, Gideon and Samson couldn't have been more different and opposite. Gideon was timid and weak and cowardly. Samson was brash and reckless and indomitable. Gideon saw himself as inadequate. Samson saw himself as invincible. So for this story, we go to the 19th, excuse me, the 13th chapter of Judges. Some time had passed, and the Israelites once again are doing their thing. And they're under now the constant marauding, attacking power of another enemy. Uh, the Midianites are gone, but now it's the Philistines. And after 20 years, and remember the time of Gideon, it took seven years. It's taking 20 years this time, because they did worse than the people with the generation before. After 20 years of oppression by the Philistines, which is the judgment of God on the rebellious hearts, we find that the angel of the Lord, that's interesting, the angel of the Lord comes back. You remember who that is? The pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself, comes to commission a new deliverer because the people are finally crying out to God to be delivered from the Philistines. So the angel of the Lord shows up in chapter 13 at, at a little home, and we find a husband and wife there in that home. The husband's name is Manoah, who becomes the father of Samson. God comes to them in the form of the one called the angel of the Lord, just as he had done with Gideon. And Manoah makes an offering, realizing that he needs to honor the Lord for this visit. Now Samson's mother, as um, Luke read earlier, had never had any children. She was barren, impossible to have children before the visit of this angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord tells them that he and his wife are going to have a son. And he's going to be a very special son. And he gives them some very special instructions. Instructions, first of all, for his wife. During her pregnancy, she is not to drink wine. Good advice. She is not to eat anything ceremonially unclean. And after the child is born, she is to treat him in a very unique way. She is never to cut his hair because Samson is going to be a Nazarite. Now, Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word to separate. Isn't that interesting? We've talked a lot about being separate in the terms of being consecrated or being sanctified, being separate unto God. If, if you were to look at Numbers chapter 6, it describes what the Nazarite vow is. It's no drinking of alcohol, no cutting of the hair, and no touching of a dead body. This was to symbolize a life of separation, the life committed to holiness, a life committed to God. A Nazarite vow could be for a specific period of time or for a lifetime. And in Samson's case, um, it was for his lifetime. So from his birth, was, um, he was... In, he was to live this life of the Nazarite, uh, with the Nazarite vows. However, during his lifetime, he violated all three of them. 
He touched a dead body, the carcass of a lion, in, in Judges chapter 14. He drank a lot at the wedding feast. A lot of alcohol was passed around in chapter 14 as well. And then in the end, he, uh, we all remember, he allowed to have his hair cut in chapter 16. He didn't keep any of his vows, which were the symbolic part of his separation. And he certainly didn't live a separated life. He was a man driven by fleshly desires. He gave in to unrestrained passion, particularly of pagan women. He had a stubborn will. He had irrational desires. He had a violent temper. He had had a volatile, combustible personality. He had a wild disregard for the commands of God. And all of that combined to make his life a legendary tragedy with the very center of that tragedy being his infatuation with Philistine women. But in spite of Samson's flagrant sin, from which he paid a horrible price, God still had a purpose for him when he got his spiritual act together at the very end. And God used this very flawed man, which should encourage us. We are all flawed in different ways. God used this very flawed man to rescue Israel from Philistine oppression and aggression. God had heard the cry of his people as they had cried out for him for that deliverance. And there were times in Samson's life when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. We're going to see a few of those this morning. And he received supernatural strength at that moment he was not perpetually strong i think people have the wrong wrong impression samson was that that strong all the time every time the spirit gave samson supernatural strength it was always related to his purpose that god had called him to it was always against the philistines because that was also god's purpose it all began when, as a young man, he insisted on marrying a Philistine woman. A union expressly forbidden by God back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. But he's going to marry this idolatrous Philistine woman because he liked the way she looked. That's what it says in Judges chapter 14. Literally, she is right in my eyes. He looked at this young lady and thought, oh, there's a hot chick, I want her. (laughs) Very superficial, didn't know her yet. No concern about God's choice, no concern about God's commands. In fact, his parents tried to dissuade him from going through with this and disobeying God, but he ignored their counsel, got his way, and decided he was going to marry her anyway. So he heads down to the town where she lived, and he's ambushed by a lion. You remember the story? In verse 6, chapter 14, says, The Spirit of the Lord, there it is, the Spirit of the Lord came Uh, powerfully upon him, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. Now, apparently, he didn't tell anybody about this, according to Scripture. And several months later, he was heading home after visiting his fiancée one day, and he purposely veers off the path. It says, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. There's a lesson there for us, I think. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26 says, be care, Give careful thought to the paths of your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. 
Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on God's word. Don't even look, even out of curiosity. It's only going to lead, lead to evil and to sin. That's what Samson did. He was curious. He just wanted to look. What happened after I killed that lion? But the sweetness of sin drew him in, literally. And he laid hands on that dead carcass and reached in and took hold of the honey. Bizarre place for bees to uh, create a hive and, and, and honey. But he took that. It tasted good. He took it home. He shared it with his parents. But by doing that, he broke that first Nazarite vow. No touching of carcasses. Reminds me of Adam and Eve a little bit. Fruit looks so good. Looks so good. So enticing. One bite won't hurt. Proverbs says, do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot. Keep your hands. Keep your eyes. Keep your mouth. Keep your thoughts from evil. So the betrothal period came to an end, and it's time now for Samson to marry this Philistine woman. The wedding preparations were made, and they notified Samson. He traveled back to his fiancée's hometown for a feast. Seven days. Seven-day marriage feast. For the Philistines, it was an excuse to get drunk and party for seven days. It was going to be a good time. Samson was right there in the middle of it. And the, Bibli the biblical text tells us here in, in this chapter that Samson was joined by 30 Philistine young men. 30 pagan Philistine uh, idolatrous men were going to stand up alongside uh, Samson. They're going to be his, his uh, groomsmen. Probably being drunk along with him, Samson decides oh, it would be a good idea to challenge him to an impossible riddle. Of course, referring back to the lion and the bees and the honey. He said, let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you, if you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linens and 30 sets of clothes. Okay, tell us a riddle, they said. Let's hear it. So he replied, out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, these 30 men could not give the answer. And they get frustrated. So they corner his wife-to-be in the middle of that marriage event, and they threaten her. Listen, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's house to death. She took that seriously, and she laid into Samson. She laid it on thick for the rest of the seven days. Listen, she threw herself on him, sobbing, You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. She cried the whole seven days of the feast. You almost feel sorry for the guy. He finally gives in, and he tells her, and she tells the men. The 30 men then give the answer to Samson, and Samson is furious, knowing that it was his beloved that betrayed him. He is so enraged that he walks all the way to a town called Ashkelon, a Philistine city 23 miles away. He kills 30 men over there, takes their clothing in order to make good on his promise to give the 30 outfits to these 30 men. And then he's so infuriated still that he skips out on his wedding and he heads home. He's done. 
Well, after a number of months, months probably of sulking at home, he decided to return at about harvest time, and he, he wants to make things right with his betrothed, see if they can get back on track again. Horrible mistake. Once he got out of the area of sin that he had gotten involved in, he should have stayed out. He should have stayed out. There's a lesson for us, huh? When we're trapped in a life of sin, it's really, really hard to get out of it. It's got our, its hooks in us and often becomes an addiction. Alcohol is like that. Pornography is like that. And we used, we used to have a gentleman in our congregation a number of years ago. He knew he had a problem with alcohol. He fought it, and he was con uh, encouraged by the men of our church as he has been struggling through this. He attended AA sometimes three times a week. And he got a grip on it, stepped away from it, and seemingly got victory over it. It was wonderful to see. But then one day, perhaps he was a little upset or got depressed uh, and decided, you know, just, just one beer. Just to take the edge off, just to calm me a little bit. And that's all it took. One beer led to two, led to three, led to four. And slowly he was sucked back into the trap. Destroyed his relationship with those who loved him most. Destroyed his relationship with the church. Destroyed his relationship with God. Same thing happens with the insidious and enticingness of pornography. Huge problem in the States. Huge problems in churches. Because it's so easy to get away with, Right? It's secret. Nobody knows. God knows. God sees. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, verse 22, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. This comes from Proverbs 26, 22, which is even harsher. As a dog returns to his vomit, so fools... <laughs> That's strong. So fools repeat their folly. And folks, the only way to break that is, is the power of Christ and then never return to sin. Once you have victory, never go back, not even a little bit. Ah, <laughs> but Samson did. Samson did. He went back into the valley of sin, as it were. And unknown to him, his father-in-law, who soon, old angry Samson, he was done and he left. He's not coming back. And he let his daughter be married to somebody else. So Samson gets angry again. He's furious. And he takes his angry anger out on the Philistines again. I'm sure you remember this story in, in verse 4 of chapter 15. So he went out and caught 300 foxes. That just boggles my mind. How do you do that? caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose, in, foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. Remember, the Philistines were under judgment, under God's judgment, and God used Samson to destroy their economy in one fell swoop. Boom. When the Philistines find out what he'd done to their crops, they blame his father-in-law to be. And they go, the Philistines, they go and burn him and burn his daughter to death. Guess what happens with Samson? He gets angry again. 
He's enraged. And we read in Judges 15, he attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went and stayed in a cave in the rock of Edom. Now there's something important to remember here. Even though Samson seems totally out of control with his anger, God was still in control. You need to remember that. God is always in control. And in his providence, God is directing Samson's rage and anger and uses it as an instrument of judgment against the Philistines. And he continues to whittle them down little by little on each incident that Samson undertakes. So now with their fields scorched and many of their own slain, the Philistines have had enough. And they gather an army and they head to Israel. They want Samson. They go to Israel. And the people of Israel are afraid of, of this guy as well. He's hiding out in, the, in a cave somewhere. And so they, they listen to the Philistines. They say, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give them to you. And so the people of Israel get 3,000 of their own and go and find Samson. And Samson, with a promise that his own people won't kill him, allows them to bind him with new rope, fresh rope. Then here come the Philistines, and Scripture say, says, they came toward him shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. There it is again, right? It's not his power. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes in his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands, finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey... He grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. The nine-inch jawbone. That's amazing power at work. God's judgment is being exercised through Samson. And then he gets all those thousand bodies and he piles them up on a heap. Major, major pile. And he names the place Ramat Lehi, which means jawbone hill. And then he go, does something which is so easy to do when you become so full of yourself. <laughs> he claims credit for himself. He says, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. But then when all the adrenaline <sighs> calmed down, he becomes weak as a lamb thirsty, as they say, unto death. Literally, as people say today, dying of thirst. And he is so thirsty, he calls out to God, and he, at that point, he acknowledges his weakness and the fact that it was indeed God who had given the victory over the Philistines. Because he was very thirsty, Scripture says, he cried out to the Lord, you have given your servant this great victory. Okay, so he, he, he came around, which is a good thing, must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? You know, there are times in our lives that we become so proud and arrogant and haughty that God needs to bring us down to get through to us. We think we know it all. We think we've got everything in control. And God brings us to a place of brokenness, sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally, until we acknowledge Him. When we come to that place where we realize that it is only Jesus, only Jesus, He then lifts us up to a place of humility. 
where he can then actually use us. And Samson cried out to God. God graciously opens up a place in a rock and pours out water for him. And the last verse of chapter 15 says, Samson led Israel for 20 years. 20 years, basically of peace. In the days of the Philistines. Uh, but alas, <laughs> at the end of those 20 years, he let down his guard again. Remember he had this weakness for Philistine women. That's what got him to trouble in the first place. He failed to guard his heart. Failed to guard his thoughts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all, guard your heart. For everything you do, and I would say everything you say, flows from it. Our actions and our words are, open, are an open window to our hearts. It's not only for God, it's so easy for people to see straight to our core. And the way we act and the way we speak. We've talked a lot about taking every thought captive. Our mind is that spiritual battlefield. Every time we think, every time we speak, every time we have a conversation with somebody, we need to ask ourselves, is this uplifting to the Lord? Is this uplifting and encouraging to the body of Christ? Is this pleasing to the Lord? Is, uh, would this thought be coming from the Holy Spirit? In any of, if any of those answers are no, we need to take that thought captive and refuse it and get it out of our heart and get it out of our minds. Samson didn't do that. And we know the rest of the tragic story. He starts looking at Philistine women again. And he finds one named Delilah. And he fixes his lust on this woman Delilah. And disaster is inevitable. And interestingly, this was all a plot by the Philistines. They actually put her out in front of Samson and say, hey, look at this gal. We know your weakness. And he sees her and he wants her. They actually pay her to find the secret of his strength. Pay her 5,500 shekels of silver. Do you know how much that is? Apparently, the average yearly wage at that time was 10 shekels of silver. They paid her 550 years worth of wages. Do your own calculation and your own wages to get that secret. So with a fortune at stake, Delilah had a great motive. She was happy to seduce this young Hebrew superhero. And she manipulates him all through chapter 16 till finally he gives in. And tells her his secret. Verse 16 of that chapter. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. So she cut his hair while he was sleeping, called the Philistines, woke up Samson, and says, then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But listen, 
But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Tragic, tragic, sad words. Folks, we cannot take God for granted. So many people do. Assuming that God's really not going to do anything. We go along in our Christian life allowing sin to just kind of sit there, unrepented of sin, which means it's unforgiven sin. Things that we do in secret, thoughts that we have in secret, grudges we hold that are, that are allowed to fester, and then we wonder why God seems so far away. Why isn't God answering and doing amazing things in my life? Where, where, where's God? Samson didn't know. Samson didn't know the sin of his life reached the turning point with God. Long blinded by his strength, long blinded by his arrogance, long blinded by his lust, he's now blinded by his captors. According to verse 21 of that same chapter, gouged out his eyes in the town of Gaza. And now he's a blind grinder of grain, like a mule, like an animal, tied to a wooden grinder that just goes in circles circles, grinding grain, utterly humiliated. The Philistines are celebrating, and they give credit to their god, Dagon. And they have this great celebration in their temple. And to humiliate Samson even further, they drag him out in front of everybody, and they try to get him to perform. Let me read what happened here. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I, so, so that I may rest against them. Archaeological evidence apparently indicates that the whole roof, literally the, its power, its force came down through those pillars and went down all the way to the foundation. So everything was dependent on those two pillars. From an engineering perspective, the weight of the whole perimeter would be drawn to those pillars all the way down to the foundation. Verse 27 says, Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, listen, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Sovereign Lord, remember me. This, I believe, was a prayer, prayer of sorrow and repentance. Remember somebody else that prayed that prayer? Remember me? Man on the cross next to Jesus? Samson was now a broken man, a penitent man, a humble man. Please, God, he said, verse 28, strengthen me just one more time and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which this, uh, the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And in humility and brokenness, as he called out, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him one more time one more time then he pushed with all his might it says and down came the temple and the rulers and all the people in it thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived Gideon and Samson <laughs> two men opposite extremes 
One is weak and becomes strong. The other is strong and becomes weak. God uses the humble, the fearful, the timid, the cowardly, empowering them by faith. And he humbles the mighty, the audacious, and the bold for his purposes. Both the weakness of Gideon and the strength of Samson were both weaknesses in God's eyes. And both of these, these men had to overcome. And in both cases, God used the weakness and helplessness of both of these men and empowered them to do his will. Back in Hebrews 11, you remember verse 34, speaking of these great men of faith, the writer says, out of weakness, they were made strong. It had to come from a place of weakness. When we look at our own lives, we wonder, can, can, can God use me? Can God use us in our weakness? Yes, he can. And he wants to. But we can't do anything for the Lord that's going to be effective in our own power and in our own wisdom. Remember, every time God used Samson, it was the Spirit of the Lord that came upon him. It was the Spirit of the Lord and his power. And my prayer this morning is that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon us, perhaps to humble us, perhaps to break us, but then to empower us to be used for his glory and for his honor. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Without your faithfulness and your love and your grace and your mercy, as was prayed earlier this morning, uh, we'd already be wiped out. We don't deserve any of it. But because of your great love for us, <laughs> Christ died even while we we're still sinners. Not only die, but my goodness, <laughs> you've given us the Holy Spirit and all the power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Father, I pray that you would, if we need to be, brought to that place of humility and, and brokenness in order for you to be able to use us. This morning, speak to us, Father. Speak to us individually. Let us hear from you. In Jesus' name.